a magic key. Welcome back to the DSK Disability Survival Kit audio experience. I look forward to sharing this next chapter with you. Let's dive in. Part 1. Self-Funding Most American families plan to self-insure, or self-fund, their lifestyle following an illness or injury. It is more common for Americans to not have a disability plan at all, which also results in emergency self-funding as the first line of defense, at least until a modicum of clarity is achieved through other potential funding mechanisms. We will explore a variety of self-funding options that may be available to the general public, such as savings, retirement, consumer debt, home equity, business equity, legal settlements, and crowdfunding. Savings. Nearly 8 in 10 Americans report living paycheck to paycheck. This is not necessarily the same as living an impoverished lifestyle. In fact, most of those who responded affirmatively to this study were above the poverty line. Middle-class workers and high-income earners are susceptible too. In regions of high population density like New York and San Francisco, a higher percentage of people are earning above six figures. However, due to the higher cost of living, these sizable paychecks can be diminished by housing costs, transportation, and technology expenses. Discretionary spending may amount to 25% or less of a paycheck, with little allocated for retirement savings. This common pattern of earning and spending results in an economic phenomenon where the vast majority of Americans report not having enough savings to cover just three months of regular expenses. And in fact, 85% of U.S. adults do not have $10,000 saved for emergencies. Many of our clients are incapable of relying on their savings as a backstop in the event of an illness or injury. The evidence is clear that self-funding cannot be considered a prescriptive method for coping with income needs following a disabling illness or injury. Retirement. For those who do have the means to bridge their resources through a short-term work stoppage, many still do not have enough saved in the bank to sustain a long-term disability. And for those who do have the savings to cover a substantial portion of a long-term disability, there's still a significant amount of opportunity costs lost when they access these retirement savings. Retirement savings are typically earmarked as the primary source of retirement income later in life. Over the course of a career, often 40 to 50 years, investment dollars have the potential to earn great returns due to the phenomenon of compound interest. $1,000 invested in year one will result in nearly 15 times that amount in year 40, assuming a 7% interest rate. If you are able to save $10,000 in your first year, that nest egg alone has the potential to earn $150,000 in the form of investment returns. Consider the Dillons. Dual income earners, both age 40, both earning $120,000 each or $20,000 a month. They live in California, so one-third, or let's say $6,800, is paid in taxes. Their monthly mortgage bill is $5,000. Regular monthly expenses amount to $5,000. They have $3,200 a month of truly discretionary income. A significant portion of that is earmarked for travel on holidays and summer vacation, 
but they have been disciplined about saving and have $250,000 stashed away. Mr. Dillon becomes disabled and his income stops. Now $10,000 a month from Mrs. Dillon is not enough to meet their $20,000 a month lifestyle. They tap into their retirement fund. It takes two years to recover from the disability. They had to tighten their spending and only use $200,000 from their $250,000 retirement nest egg over that period of time. $200,000 at a rate of 7% across 25 years to age 65 would result in a retirement shortfall of over $1 million. This is the impact of self-funding for a short-term disability. Consumer debt. Credit card debt is not designed as a financial tool for long-term debt leveraging. Credit limits typically act as a governor against compounding bills. However, many people find themselves with few options in short-term situations. In fact, CNBC reports that 11 million people use credit card debt to cover medical expenses each year. Astronomical interest rates of 10 to 25% can easily lead to a mountain of financial pressure that is nearly impossible to pay down in the near term and still extremely difficult to catch over the long term. Bank loans may be considered as another option, but it becomes more difficult to access these loans if cash flow is already constrained due to a disability. In other words, a bank will want to see some evidence that repayment is imminent. This might not be available in a long-term disability scenario, and if it is, the interest obligations may be prohibitive. Consider the Dillons. They always pay their $5,000 monthly credit card bill on the first of every month. After their income is reduced by 50%, they start to finance this debt with the belief that they will be back at full earning potential in no time. However, the disability lingers for two years or 24 months. After three months, their credit limit is exceeded. They realize that they will need another income source simply to pay off some of the debt to come back beneath their credit limit, not to mention the accumulating interest debt. Home equity. Many people consider their home to be an untouchable asset, usually due to a sentimental reason or perhaps legacy values or inheritance. Some may find that the equity in a home is a useful source of cash in an emergency situation. Reverse mortgages, also known as HECM loans, can generate a significant income stream in the right situation, but that requires the homeowner to be over the age of 65, not an option for a pre-retirement source of disability income. However, some working professionals may see the appeal of accessing their home equity in the form of a second mortgage. Qualified homeowners may be able to trade the capital value of the equity in their home in exchange for a quick five or six figure loan that will need to be repaid with interest. With interest rates close to 5%, this may be a relatively inexpensive way to transfer a hard asset into liquid cash. This strategy, of course, is a non-starter for new homeowners and renters. Renters do not build equity with their monthly payments. New homeowners pay mostly interest charges for the first 10 years of a new loan before the equity payments start to amount to an asset-worthy component. Consider the Dillons, who bought a home in 2015 for $600,000. Between their down payment 
and three years of modest principal payments, they now own 20% of the loan value. But their home is now worth $730,000, so their total equity value has increased to $250,000. They find a mortgage broker to help them access a second mortgage for $200,000 in exchange for a relatively modest monthly payment across 30 years at 5% interest. That loan amount actually amounts to over $850,000 at the date of amortization, a very high price tag. Business equity. It's a common refrain to hear that some business owners love their business more than their family. No matter how much a business owner loves his family, parting ways with the business can be a difficult decision, often complicated by emotion and even relationships. The most significant obstacle to the sale of equity in a corporation or partnership may be the partnership itself. If the funds are available for a sale, there is no guarantee that there will be a willing buyer on the other side. If the non-disabled partner does not want to purchase the equity shares from a disabled partner, then the sale may go to a third party, which can lead to a severely discounted sale price, resulting in a reduction of value and even a major disruption of the business, let alone any relationships. This can be especially destructive with family businesses. It's important to remember that a sale to a third party is usually not out of spite for the able partner, but instead out of desperation for a cash flow in a serious time of need. On the contrary, a business partner may want to purchase the shares, but the buyer may be lacking the capital to transact the sale. If the buying partner does not have the cash to buy out the disabled partner, then there is no transaction. The best way to mitigate these events is with a buy-sell agreement. Most comprehensive agreements will call for the mandatory purchase of a disabled partner's shares following a predetermined period of disability, usually a year or more. If the disabled partner is not back to work after that period of time, then the sale is transacted at a predetermined price. Many business owners already retain buy-sell agreements in the event of the death of a partner with the transaction typically financed by a life insurance policy. More and more companies are beginning to see the gap in their agreement if they do not have the proper disability buy-sell policy in place. Legal Settlements The increasing wave of litigation is palpable, especially in a region like the Bay Area or California at large. Campaigns and ads for injury suits and class action movements abound. The Council for Disability Awareness has conducted consistent studies year in and year out which illustrate the rarity of disabilities due to injury. In fact, less than 5% of disability claims were due to an accidental injury. Even fewer are attributed to negligence, which means a minute fraction of disabling events are eligible for litigation. Aside from some extenuating residential or work hazard Chronic illness derived from another party's negligence is not a reliable source of income. Furthermore, any proceeds from a successful lawsuit would be split with a legal team, sometimes at exorbitant rates, resulting in drastically reduced net settlements. Consider the Dillons. Their income is halved due to an accidental injury caused by a rideshare motorist. The driver and the parent organization are brought into the lawsuit. 
Following a years-long battle, the rideshare company is exonerated. The driver is ordered to pay restitution. He is financially unable to execute the payments, and the court process continues to accrue mounting attorney's fees, and a meager payment is eventually paid long after recovery. Crowdfunding. Crowdfunding has become a major part of financial daily life for young people in the U.S. and around the world. Artistry, innovation, and the odd continue to account for a large portion of crowdfunding initiatives. However, these sites have evolved to include several philanthropic causes and health-related events. Crowdfunding may be the last chance to pay for an experimental surgery or perhaps just a family who's struggling to cover their most basic living expenses following an unexpected medical event. The success from some of these fundraising campaigns has led to beautiful stories of a global community proving their humanity and compassion in a world that doesn't always feel so kind or fair. Sadly, there are many campaigns that go unfulfilled, not because their pain or desperation is any less, but because it may not have captured the hearts and minds of a viral community for one reason or another. It can be very difficult to cultivate a successful crowdfunding campaign after a personal catastrophe has already occurred, especially when you consider the physical and emotional toll already taxed by an illness or injury. While some crowdfunding sites are engineered specifically for this purpose in mind, most still charge a fee for service. That means if the campaign is successful or fully funded, then there's a strong probability that the party in need will have to pay a portion of their raised capital back to the crowdfunding company. Thanks for tuning in to the Disability Survival Kit audio experience this week. Tune in next week for more.